we're going to do is um, we're going to talk about prophecy. Um, I'm going to do a couple of sessions this morning, um, and it might not seem like I'm explicitly talking about prophecy. Okay, bear with me. I'm laying a bit of a foundation for what Paula and Rebecca are going to teach um, next week, and then I'm going to actually come in as well towards the end of next week and give you some more teaching that is explicitly about prophecy. But um, I really want to lay a foundation so that we um, understand the heart of prophecy, why we prophesy. Um, because I think that's really, really important. Um, I think there's no point in prophesying if we don't really understand the purpose of it. Um, and I've met many people um, who do prophesy and uh, they cause a lot of messes uh, because they don't understand the, the heart of it. Um, and we might, we'll talk about that at some point as well. But um, do you remember in the Bible, Jesus um, starts his ministry, turns 30, he starts his ministry, and he's wandering down to the shores of Galilee, and he comes across um, Peter and Andrew. And do you remember he just walks up to these two fishermen on the shore, and he says, come, follow me. And they just drop their nets and follow him. Do you ever, like, read that and just think, there's got to be more to this? You know, like, if, if you were working your job, and you were doing what you were doing, and some random stranger, complete stranger, 30-year-old comes up to you and says, come follow me. Would you just quit your job, leave your family, leave all your friends, and just walk off with them? You know, it's like, what's actually happening here? Right? I mean, it's, it's kind of mental to me like, to think that you would just do that. Um, and this is before Jesus is Jesus. Do you know what I mean? He's not done any amazing miracles. No one knows of him or anything like that. And he's just walked up to some strangers and said, come follow me. And they just go with him immediately. Um, and I think that, to me, is one of the most like surprising things about um, people's responses to Jesus was they were quite over the top at times. And I'm like, what's going on? What's happening? And um, to understand it, we kind of really need to understand a little bit more about Jewish culture as a whole. Um, a lot of us don't really dive into what uh, the Jews did in their day-to-day -day lives, what it looked like to be a person 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem or in Israel, like it was very different to how we grew up. We lived our lives, um, radically different in fact. Um, and so I want to go into that a little bit. I'm going to um, pull on some stuff uh, that Rob Bell's used quite a bit. Um, the, there's a book called The Everyday Talmud that's a really good book as well. And so it, just some stuff that kind of opens up um, what Judaism kind of looked like uh, at this point and what, what the culture was like for these guys. And so I want to talk about how they were raised. Okay, so I don't know about you, but I'm assuming like um, most good kids, you grew up in a, an old house and then you, at a certain point, you went to like a kindergarten or something like that. And then after that, you go to like a primary school and you start learning a few things. You know, you learn your languages, your maths, your whatever else. And, and, and then after a while, you go to a high school and you start to pick your classes and specialize in what you want to learn and you work through that. And after that, a lot of people go and get an apprenticeship or go to university or something. But that's kind of what it's like for most of us in the West. You know, whether you're in Germany, England, America, most of us go through that, that system. And that was just not at all how it worked. Um, that system had not been created yet. Um, and for Jews at the time, they would have um, grown up and at the age of six, most Jews would have been separated from their parents and ha would have gone and um, done something called Beit Sefer. And Beit Sefer basically meant that the first five books of the Bible, 
So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, all five of them, they would memorize. From the age of six through to 10, they memorized the first five books of the Bible. Right? Can you imagine that at six years old? Do you know any six-year-olds that you think would be capable of that? You're like, no, not at all, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's full on, right? Um, and so that's what they did. They, they went to um, a school, um, and it would be run by different teachers, different rabbis, and, and, and they would learn and memorize the first five books of the Bible for, the, for these four years of their lives, from six through to 10. And then what happened was, um, as they completed this, most of them, I mean, most of them would probably have a good chunk of it down. I'm not sure they would word for word have memorized the whole thing perfectly, but there were a select few that were the best of the best. And at the end of their time, at 10 years old, the, the rabbis would come to them and go, hey, we think you should, you should stay on. What do you think? Like, and they would have this conversation and they would go, yeah, we want to stay on and we want to learn more. And so a good, a, a good chunk, and this was, this was an optional thing. If you didn't have to, and most um, Jewish kids probably at this point would go, I'm done with school, right? Because that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> um, if, school, if the first four years of school for you was memorizing the Bible, I don't know if I'd stay on for fifth year, you know? Um, and so a lot of them went back and they learned their farmer's uh, trade, their uh, fishing, their whatever it was they were doing, a blacksmith, you know, they would go home to whatever their parents did and they would learn the family trades and continue that business. Um, but some of them would stay on and say, no, I'm really dedicated to my studies, I want to learn more. And they would stay on for something called Beit Midrash. And Beit Midrash was, they would then study and learn right through to the age of sort of 14, 15, so another four or five years, they would study and learn the whole scriptures. So everything that the Jews had at this time, Genesis through Malachi, okay? Like two thirds of your Bible, they would memorize. And then they're not just memorizing, they're, they're learning it. They're, in, they're trying to figure out how would we, um, how would I interpret it? How, how does it work for, for, for me? How do I think it applies? You know, all this different stuff, they're working through all this stuff. Um, and so it was a pretty like full on like uh, thing, wasn't it? Um, sorry, that's that's not Beit Midrash, that's Beit um, Talmud. Sorry, I just glanced at my notes and I'm like, no, I've got that upside down. So Beit Talmud was they would memorize the rest of this, the rest of the scriptures. And what would happen is at the end of that, most people would then go, okay, well, now I've kind of understood the scriptures a bit. I'm ready to be a good Jewish boy. I'm going to go back home <laughs> and do what I was going to do. And they'd become blacksmiths or fishermen or farmers or whatever it is that they would do, you know, trading, whatever it was. Um, but there was a select few that were like, I really think I'm good enough to give my whole life to this. I, I want to give my life to this. And what would happen is at the end of um, Beit Talmud, the, this period, um, they would have a whole bunch of different rabbis would show up kind of scouting, if, you, if that makes sense. You know, like in a football team where the scouts come up for the, one of the last games of the season, they're like, okay, who's, who's someone we should trade? Who's someone we should get on our team? This is almost what happened with the rabbis. The rabbis would show up and they would go, right, we're looking for a disciple. Um, and we hear disciple and we think of, you know, in Christian terms, that kind of is like, oh, get them to say a prayer and get signed up to be a Christian. And, and then, you know, I'll tell them what they should know about Christianity. And that's not at all what disciple means in Judaism, at all. Like, it's nothing about knowing what's true or wrong, um, which is quite a shock to Christians because that's all we're about, is like, let me teach you what we know. And we talked about that the other day with, you know, it's one thing to know, it's another thing to believe and, and, and actually walk in it. Um, and discipleship, to, to be someone's discipleship, disciple was to 
um, have a stamp of approval on you that says, I think you can do what I do. So if you wanted to disciple for a rabbi, you said, I want to do what that rabbi does. I want to follow his way. Um, it wasn't, I want to know what he knows. Now that's probably a big part of it, right? So the disciple's probably imparting some great knowledge. And from that place, you would then do what the disciple did. But the goal was never to just know the stuff. The goal was, I want to end up doing what he does. Um, and so what happened was all these different rabbis would show up. And each rabbi would have their own uh, set of teachings because um, Judaism as well was uh, very varied. Um, a lot of people think that Judaism was just clear cut, black and white, but actually um, different people in the Jewish faith had very different beliefs from one another. So they would look at a scripture and they go, oh, I think that means this. And someone else would go, oh, no, 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 I think that means this. Um, and that's really important to understand as well. It gives us a lot of grace when we understand that uh, Christianity has 40,000 plus denominations, you know? There's a lot of denominations. There's a few disagreements amongst Christian, Christians, you know? Um, and Judaism had a lot of disagreements as well, but that was okay, it was good, and it was actually encouraged in Jewish faith. So one of the um, things that you were required was, um, technically you were not supposed to speak on any scripture until you could tell seven different meanings that the scripture could mean. So you couldn't have your own opinion and say, this is what the scripture means until you could give at least six other meanings. And the point behind it was, we want you to really dive into the scripture, figure out lots of different meanings. What could it possibly mean? Even if you completely disagree, like what could it mean? And the, the point of it is that you would actually end up with a much richer truth out of it. You might even change your mind, which would happen all the time. I mean, if you go to the scriptures and just pick a, a passage, a section of scripture and say, I'm gonna try and find six different ways to interpret this, there's a good chance you'll come away with a much greater appreciation for that passage. Um, and so that's what they would do. And, and, and so that was, it was normal for you to disagree, for you to have different opinions and different interpretations. That was a good thing. The scripture was never a black and white instruction book to the Jews. It was always a text that would lead to a conversation. You would read the scripture and then you would debate it and you would discuss it. And so each rabbi would have different ways that they interpreted it, you know? Um, and so it would be like, uh, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, like Mike Bickle, Bill Johnson, John Piper, and Rob Bell walk into a room and they go, right, who wants to follow me? You're, you're signing up for a di very different work experience, you know? Um, you know, with Mike Bickle, you're gonna have prayer and fasting and, and all that different stuff. With Bill Johnson, it's gonna be about traveling and healing the sick and presence. And with uh, Rob Bell, it's gonna be about living in the now and like experiencing God in the everyday life with John Piper. Let's leave that. Um, <laughs> it's gonna be about studying the word and understanding that the word is exactly God's word and it only has one black and white interpretation. And if you've got it wrong, you're completely wrong and we're, we're, we're not gonna um, have a relationship with you. It's a very, very fundamental view of the scripture. So who do you want to follow? You know, that's, that's very different views. And this is what would happen. These rabbis would show up and they would have very different views. And each rabbi's set of interpretations, so the way they interpret the scripture was called their yoke. And this is what actually suddenly makes um, Jesus' statement, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, very um, powerful. Because we read it and we think, oh, he's talking about like a, a yoke that an ox puts on and they, what? And that, yeah, that's, I mean, that is where the yoke kind of comes from, but it had a very specific meaning to Judaism. You know, they, they, when they said yoke, it meant how I interpret the scriptures and how I walk in the scriptures. And so when Jesus says, the way I interpret scriptures and the way I walk in the scriptures is easy and it has no burden. Like, oh, wow, 
that's quite a significant statement that we brush over if we don't understand this context. Um, and so these different rabbis would show up and they'd have their different yokes and they would say to um, these uh, these prospective students, they'd say, okay, well, this is, they would give maybe a bit of an introduction, like this is what I believe, this is some of my interpretations, and they've probably heard about some of these guys. You know, these guys are pretty well known. Um, you know, it'd be like if Bill Johnson came along here, you wouldn't need an introduction. You kind of know who he is. You've, you've heard of his name. or um, And so they would come along and they would share a bit and then they would say, okay, um, who's, who's interested in applying, you know? And so various dis uh, people, with, uh, various of the young boys uh, would, would come along and go, I want to be your disciple. And they would grill them. They would ask them every question you could imagine. They would ask them really obscure questions to try and throw them off. They would ask them the big complex questions, you know, is eternity predetermined or is it based on our free will? They would ask like all sorts of complex questions. They would ask questions about the scriptures. They would ask questions about life. They would ask philosophical questions. They would really challenge these, uh, these young men. And after a while, I mean, this could take days sometimes of like this intense process of like, it's like the world's worst exam kind of thing, you know? Um, and at the end, they would usually say, okay, here's the deal. You have gone through Beit Sefer, and you obviously know your, the first five books really well. You've gone through Beit Talmud, and, and you obviously know the scriptures well. You're, you're a smart guy, you're really good. Um, I, I really appreciate the interpretations you have to bring to the table. I love some of your thoughts, but to be honest, you're not the best. I think you should go home and become a fisherman or a blacksmith or whatever else your family does. And you know, most people that would apply would get that response. We're talking 90% plus. I mean, it was hard to get on the, the list of becoming a disciple for one of these rabbis. And you know, so you have become the best of the, of the 10 year olds. You know, of all the people that made it to 10, you were the best to make it through to the next round. And then you made it all the way through Beit uh, Talmud and you were the best of the best because now you're applying to, to do this Beit Midrash. And most of the time after that period, you would get a, sorry, you're not good enough. So this was hard to get in. You know, you think university application is hard? Like it was, pretty hard. You're talking a tiny percentage of the population would ever become a disciple for a rabbi. But every now and again, very rarely, one of these, one of these, uh, these guys would, would go through this process with the rabbi and they would be asked all these different questions and they would hear this phrase when the rabbi thought, you know what, I think this kid can do what I can do. Because that's what discipleship is about. It isn't about your knowledge and how well you know the scripture or how well you interpret the scripture. So these kids might know a lot, but that wasn't enough for the disciple, uh, for the rabbi, sorry. The rabbi was looking for, do I think this kid can do what I do? And so once in a while, the rabbi would look at a kid and he'd go, man, his knowledge is on point. He really knows his stuff. He's really smart. He's really intellectual. But it's not just that. There's something about this kid that I think he can do what I can do. And if he came to that conclusion, he would throw out this phrase. He would say, come, follow me. That phrase isn't just a random collection of three words. <laughs> it's a very significant phrase to a Jew. 
because it's the initiation of a, a young man who's a studious intellectual studier of God's words to you are now a disciple of a rabbi. And it's a statement that says, I think you can do what I do. When a rabbi says, come follow me, he says, you there, you can do what I do. And so if we rewind back to the shores on Galilee, we see two young men that are fishing. Now, they're fishing. They're not in the synagogue studying, applying to be disciples. That means they weren't the best of the best. We don't know their story, but we know that they didn't make it that far. <laughs> and so they weren't the best of the best. They weren't highly knowledgeable, super intellectual, um, or if they were, they certainly didn't want to go and become a disciple. Maybe that was their, their reason, but they weren't a disciple. They were a fisherman. And all of a sudden, some random rabbi walks down the, the path. And you, you would tell that this guy was a rabbi by the way he was dressed, and, um, and you would probably have heard, oh, a rabbi's in town as well. You might have heard something along those lines. But he comes down to the shore, and he says, hey, you guys, come follow me. And I mean, this is the highest honor in Judaism. But there is no higher honor than a rabbi saying, hey, I think you can do what I do. Because this guy spent 30 years of his life dedicated to doing what he does. To say, I think you can do this, I think you've got what it takes, is a huge, huge statement. And yet this is the underpinning of Jesus's ministry. This is how Jesus operates. He goes up to a stranger he knows nothing about, looks him in the eyes and says, you have what it takes to do what I do. Jesus doesn't go through a big initiation process. Jesus doesn't interview them. Jesus doesn't get to know them deeply and then go, all right, I think you might have what it takes. He goes up to a stranger, looks him in the eyes and says, you can do what I do. I believe in you. Because that's ultimately what he's saying, isn't it? He's saying, hey, I believe in you. And if there's a, a phrase that encapsulates uh, much of Jesus' work, it would be that, wouldn't it? I mean, over and over and over again, the undercurrent of his message is, I believe in you. In fact, when I look through the New Testament, I see much more about God believing in you than I do about people believing in God, which is really fascinating. You know, I, an example of this, like, I often think of um, Peter in the boat with the disciples and Jesus suddenly, there's a big storm going on and, and they're all freaking out and Jesus is walking along in the water, right? And so they're like, oh, it's a ghost or, you know, they're freaking out and then and they're like, wait, no. It's Jesus. And so Peter goes, Lord, if it's you, call me out. And you're like, what is he thinking? Right? I mean, because like, let's be honest, right? What I'm thinking is, Lord, if that's you, do you want us to throw you a life raft? Right? I'm not thinking, Lord, if that's you in the stormy water, I'll come out and join you. Like, that's the last thing I'm thinking, right? I mean, if you actually analyze this, this is, they're fishermen, right? Most of them are fishermen and they're scared. I would say they've had a fair few storms in their day. So this, to me, is a scary storm. This is a bad storm. Like, in the pictures, it's always funny, isn't it? Because it's like, you know, like a little like, wave like this, and Jesus is standing on it, and like, Peter's like, you know, walking out to him and starting to sink, usually, in the pictures. But, you know, it's like, 
have you ever seen, if you've seen those videos on, like, I don't know if you've ever gone on YouTube, go on YouTube and search like North Sea Storm or something like that. And like the boats are literally going straight up and then they come up the top and then they go straight down and they literally just go into water and then they come out. I mean like, it's like, these waves are like 200 foot high. You, you guys are um, metric. I have no idea what that is. 60, 70 meters high. I mean, you're talking like eight story building. No, that's way higher than that, isn't it? I have no idea. I don't do metric. Um, <laughs> but you're talking absolutely huge waves. Like, you can't even see over them sort of thing. Now, I know the Sea of Galilee is not the North Sea, okay? But my point being, sailors are used to some seriously rough stuff. And for them to be scared of this, it would be terrifying. So I, I don't see Peter's first response as entirely logical in my book, right? Because I'm like, no, I, I'm good, thanks. I'll stay in the boat because that's scary enough. But Peter goes, if that's you, I want to jump out there and do what you're doing. And that's the key, isn't it? He wants to do what he's doing. And I think this, it, it, it suddenly highlights what was in the disciples. That Jesus in his time with the disciples has hammered into them again and again and again. You're my disciple. You can do what I can do. Now, can you imagine following a regular rabbi that's like, you know, he, he's looking after the poor, he's feeding the hungry, like he's teaching people and helping better their lives. He's a motivational speaker, you know, he's doing all this great stuff and I can do what he does. That's amazing. Can you imagine when you follow Jesus and he says, oh, I think you can do what I do. You'd be like, uh, seriously? I mean, this guy just fed like 5,000 people with a couple bits of bread. This guy just like raised up a dead guy, right? This guy just healed someone that was like epileptic. This guy just cast out demons. Like, do you, are you serious when you say, I can do what you do? I mean, that would be mental to like be following this guy. Because one thing for a regular rabbi to say, hey, come follow me. For this guy to say, come follow me, whoa. And so built into these disciples, or at least Peter apparently, <laughs> is if he's doing it, I'm supposed to do it too. And so it's not a, oh, Jesus is walking on water, let's get him in the boat. It's a, Jesus is walking on water, I wanna jump out there and do it. And I think that's amazing. Like, uh, what has been placed in Peter? What has been taught to Peter? What has been instilled in Peter that that's his first response, right? I mean, that's a pretty, because like I said, I mean, I don't know how many people that would be the first response. Um, and yet, Peter jumps out and he starts walking along in the water, doesn't he? And what happens? It doesn't go well, right? <laughs> Maybe it goes well for a few steps, or I don't know, we don't have the exact details for how long it went well. Um, but after a while, he's his, his going lower. <laughs> Things aren't great. Um, and he, he calls out and he says, Lord, help me. And, and what does Jesus say? He says, you of little faith. And I've always looked at that and Jesus is standing on the water. Peter's starting to sink and drown. And Jesus points at him and says, you of little faith, why don't you believe in me? Why don't you have enough faith? And I, I, I was rereading this passage recently and I just like, I don't think that's what it means. I don't think it's about him not trusting Jesus, not believing in Jesus, because Jesus isn't sinking. Like, it's really hard not to trust Jesus while he's floating on water, you know? Who's he not got faith in? What is his little faith? His little faith is in himself. 
He's doubting, I can do what Jesus is doing. He's doubting, I can walk in what Jesus is walking, or on what Jesus is walking, as the case may be. Jesus isn't scolding him for not believing in Jesus enough. He's, he's, he's correcting me. He's scolding him, saying, Peter, you need to believe in yourself. Why have you stopped believing you can do what I do? And of course, he pulls them up and they get back on the boat or whatever, and that's the end of the story. But how often do we do that? How often do we warp and twist what God says as um, a statement or a correction into this condemning, harsh thing? And I just don't see it, actually. Now I look back on it, I'm like, wow, actually, I don't think that's what's going on. I think Jesus is saying, I believe in you. You can do what I can do. Don't doubt that. Where's your faith? Believe in what I'm telling you. So what has this got to do with the prophetic? <laughs> right? That's a really good question, eh? I think this has everything to do with the prophetic. Absolutely everything to do with the prophetic. And I think a lot of the times we look at the prophetic as this call to to uh, believe God, to, to trust in God, to, to believe in God. Um, and there certainly was that throughout the Old Testament. But when I see the prophetic in Jesus' life, he's not very often calling people to believe in God. He's more often calling them to believe that God believes in them. He's saying, you need to start believing what God is saying about you. And I think more than anything, this, this, this prophetic utterance that we get to be a part of, that we get to um, deliver, is the message, God believes in you. It's what is God saying about you. And I think if we're honest, that's probably what we struggle with much more than what do we believe about God at times. It's not hard to trust that God can walk on water really hard to trust that he believes I can. It's not hard to trust that God can get someone out of a wheelchair. Really hard to believe that he thinks I can. And the heart of the prophetic is God's saying to you, this is who you are. I think you have what it takes to do what I do. And you know, you look through the scriptures, God rarely does anything on his own really rarely. Like I'm pretty sure you could do a Bible study and you'd find very little things that God has done on his own. He always uses his creation. He loves using his creation. He believes you can do what he can do because he made you to do it. It's not a let me look around and see what I can find that will work. It's a oh yeah I made all these people so they could do what I do. Like the purpose of you being designed is that you were designed to work with God, to be compatible with God. And we'll talk about that a lot more in depth um, when I do a week working through Romans. Um, but it's really important that we grab this concept, this concept of um, why we prophesy. So I'm gonna kind of go over that over two sessions and I think this will, we'll, we'll wrap up this session and have a quick break, but um, one of the fundamental reasons we prophesy is not to predict earthquakes or 
you know, calamities or whatever, or to tell people they're filthy, rotten sinners or any other nonsense that we see far too often. It's to carry this message, this underlying message, this come follow me, this, this statement that God believes you can do what he can do. That you have what it takes to walk in godliness. You have what it takes to walk with him. Thank you for listening to the iDestiny podcast. For further information, check out www.idestiny.org.au.